Welcome, Fivers, to another episode of High Five, the podcast, a movie podcast for people who like other stuff, too. On this week's episode, your hosts Q and Jay dive into some of their favorite movies and hopefully talk about some of your favorites, too. Feel free to yell at your speakers when we ignore your favorites, or you could just tweet at us with your choices, like an adult. Now, let's join Q and Jay in the writer's room as they dive in. Fair warning. This podcast may contain spoilers for movies that came out 20 years ago, but at this point, that's really your fault. And now, on with the show. Oh, hey, Jay. Uh... You you look a little different, like your your eyes are not there, and you kind of look bald, and you've what what's going on? You feeling okay? Oh, I see. Got it. Feeling a little under the weather? Yeah, just a little. Yeah, that that's that's cool. I got it. Well, um, I I can't say this is a good look for you. It's kind of a it's kind of an unsettling appearance um and i just um i kind of prefer it if you would just put your human skin back on um just for the sake of the episode well i guess if you're not going to high claw should we high five high five high five high five high five five, don't let me hang it Hey, thanks for putting your skin back on. You're to very talk to me like a human. You're very welcome. Well, I don't know if I ever talk to you like I'm a human, um, <laughs> but no, this is the skin feels better. That those clicking noises, I don't know how that pan's labyrinth creature does that. That was not easy on the throat, uh, well. and especially when you have like those weird skin folds like he has <laughs> under his neck, like them flapping around. You know what? Let me just put it this way: don't love it. Didn't don't. love it. Not gonna, not gonna be that weird I creature anymore. I do not know anymore. how Doug Jones lives like this. <laughs> That's his day in, day out, man. Uh, it has to be okay. Uh, aside from all the jokes we're gonna make on this podcast, Doug Jones, I think, spends a hundred percent of his time in some sort of weird creature makeup. Uh, yes, one hundred. Let's be honest. Can I? I'm gonna throw out a theory. Doug Jones is just a bunch of character makeup. <laughs> like he's actually not a person. He's like a weird. He's like from Hellboy Two, the one guy Seth MacFarlane, who's like right. just a disembodied, yes, like ectoplasmic so, mist. Right. Yeah. That's Doug Jones, and instead he just kind of like inhabits these creature suits. So and gives human, a performance. The human version of Doug Jones that's like on Instagram and it goes to it's a just another shows, suit, just a skin suit, just another suit. You know what? That makes so much sense <laughs> given how good he is at all of this. It all it tracks, man. It, it all lines it does. up. Okay, so here it is, guys. Official high five theory. And Doug Jones, if you disagree with this, feel let free. Let us know. Come on the podcast and dispute it. We'll try and poke holes in it and let your ectoplasmic mist out. But come <laughs> on the show and tell us that you're not just an ectoplasmic conscious mist living inside multiple different creature and human skin suits. Tell us you're and, not. Change our minds. And here it is. <laughs> Fivers. You're our army on this. If he doesn't respond, it's his way of saying it's true. Right. Also, it, to help him respond, why don't you tweet at Doug Jones? You can message him on Instagram. Repost this episode to him. Let him know that you want answers. We, we, we need we need answers. We need answers. That's true. So well, hashtag hey. Doug Jones is ectoplasmic mist. Yep. I know it's hard to spell, but that uses up most of your characters. But do it anyway. Figure it out. It's Hashtag fine. Doug Jones is ectoplasmic mist. Right. Yep. Uh, well, hey, Q. Hey, Jay. What's happening? It's another another week and another high five. Another high five, colon, the podcast with me and you and our fivers and movie news and happiness and joy sort of and stuff. ectoplasm. And, and man, we're, we're hitting everything today. Clicky sounds. We're just making it. We're just making it work today. How, hey, sp- Oh, hey, hey, speaking hey. of today, can I can I yeah. throw out why today's episode is special, why we're talking about ectoplasm and mist? And yes, no, please do. There's a lot of exciting things about today. One of the things that is happening today and what our episode is kind of uh, themed in honor of is today 
a movie that you and I have both highly been anticipating is dropping, and that is Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Oh, yeah. And I am so jazzed for this movie. It is a movie that as soon as it popped up on the radar and I heard that it was being made, I could not wait. There was two things that I thought of in my head that I'm like, these two things need to happen for me to get excited about this. One, I need to see actual realizations of some of these horrifying drawings from this book that scarred me as a child. Yes. And, and according to the trailers, I'm getting that. You're, we're getting real close adaptations of those. And two, I was like, it would be a mistake if somehow Guillermo del Toro is not involved with this movie. And he's a producer. Ta-da! So, oh, so beautiful. So two, my two caveats of like, I'm only going to see this movie if have both been answered, and I am very, very excited. Well, and I I think uh, I'll add to that because I had some caveats about this as well. Now, I I think we've talked about this book and definitely this trailer on the show before, but Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was one of the seminal books of my young life when, like, establishing me as a horror fan. It was in the mix of I started with, like, Goosebumps books, and then, you know, before I moved on to... Fear Street, I had the scary stories to tell books, so these stories were very, very important to me. For sure. And so, part of the caveat for me was, one, it not only had to align with the themes and the imagery and everything you were talking about, but somehow, those original stories needed to be involved. Now, it didn't need, you know, I think you and I hypothesized that maybe it's going to be an anthology-type movie, like a VHS, or maybe it's going to be whatever, but as long as some of those, you know, like the big toe or the scarecrow, like as, as long as those were involved in some way, I needed that because this property is, in my mind, based around those images and those stories. So it can't just be a wrapper for other types of scary stories. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Now, one thing that I will say um, that I'm a little hesitant about is it appears from the trailer, and this is pure speculation from the trailer, it appears that they are going the Goosebumps the movie angle on this, which is basically there is a book that contains all of these individual stories, and that's kind of what happens. For those who haven't seen Goosebumps the movie, spoiler (laughs) alert, I know it was high on your list, but... uh, (laughs) Spoiler alert, Jack Black's in it. Right, uh... In that movie, R.L. Stein writes all these books, and basically he has a master book that has contained all of the monsters from his writings. Well, well hold on. I got to put a pin in that. Okay. If we're going to be spoiling Goosebumps the movie, we need to do it a bit more accurately. It's not one book. It's many books. Oh, is it? Every one of his books has a master that is where he captured the ah, evil of the story, perfect. but he... One of the first ones that's released is the dummy, and then he opens all the rest. Oh, of them. okay. Well, thank so, you. I'm sorry. I, hey, I didn't I want the goosebumps purists out there farting and fucking up our ratings. Okay. Since so, I saw that movie, I already forgot it. Uh, I have to say, I I also saw that one, and I did see Goosebumps too. I can't tell you a single thing that happens in Goosebumps 2 <laughs> except for the fact that Jack Black shows up at the very end and does nothing, and that's the joke. And I love it. Yeah, so so if anyone wants to tell me what Goosebumps 2 is about, that's really what I'm getting at. Like, I, I, I need to know. I've seen it, Please. but I don't want to watch it again. Please. Um, so in that movie, like you had said, the monsters escape and wreak havoc on this town. Right. And from what I can tell in the trailer, they're going a similar route in that there's a book that has been written by this woman. It kind of gives off a witch vibe. Like kind maybe of. she's like a witch of the town. Everyone in town was scared of her. It's right. a mystery house. And so she wrote all of these scary stories and kind of one by one, her creatures come are coming to life. true. Now, right. one thing that I do, and again, all conjecture from the trailer. So let me put this out there, guys. Uh, and and by the way, after you listen to this episode, go see the movie because it's coming out today. I'm um, going to see and, it and tell us. You can so everyone can tell us how right or wrong we are. But what I think it seems to appear that is happening in the trailer is that the book is writing in the new kids, like their names are becoming part of those stories, right. and then the stories are coming to life around each right. one of them. Which honestly 
cool hook. Yeah, also very uh, The Shining. Very, yeah. Very the end of The Shining, you were always here kind yeah. of situation. It's like, like you're part of the story, and that's what's making it come to life. So, like, the dumb jock or the mean jock, he gets written into the Scarecrow story, and that's how we get that story arc. By the I'm way, fine with this. Can I mention that Scarecrow, Harold, is his name. Harold the Scarecrow is one of the images from my childhood that disturbed me the most. Oh, yeah. And he is also one that they kind of they tweaked a little bit. And I don't know why this is going to sound so ridiculous. <laughs> but the OK, this in the in the drawn version in the story, in the actual book. Right. He was illustrated as having this like weird protruding stomach. Yeah. That like stuck out. It was like a skin stomach. And in like the beer movie, belly, right? In kid the, bones, right? And in the movie, they don't have that. And instead, he's like missing his middle, so you can like see through right. him. There was something that was more disturbing about him having like a fleshy stomach. <laughs> yeah, that really bothered me as a kid because in my head, I was like, "That's real skin. Like that's no. person skin." You know what I mean? <laughs> How like, did he get? Like, skin. like, I don't know why, but as a kid, that really registered with me and just scared the bejesus out of me. I was like, right. that's like a skinned person stuffed with, like, straw. <laughs> I don't like this. Now, okay, so I have to say one. That you, you mentioned Harold. I'm glad. Now, I will say, of the books that exist, the first one is by far the best. Now, just like in a creep show movie, there are segments of the sequels and the follow-ups that are good. Uh, and one of them that has always stuck out to me is, and I know they're doing it in the movie, is the red spot. It's the one with with the girl that has spiders that come out of her face. I've had a fear of spiders my entire life. So that story has stuck with me since I read it as a kid in, uh, what is it, More Tales to Scare oh, yeah. Yourself in the uh-huh, Dark or whatever uh-huh. it's called. Um, that movie, or that story, has affected me so deeply. And then when I saw that it was going to be in this movie... I got both very happy and very anxiety driven uh, because <laughs> now I know I'm going to have to watch that on screen. And I don't know if I have the con- continence for it. Uh, sure. Uh, I hope not. For it. I continence? hope not. I don't know. One of them's You're going to, you're going to both, you're going to poop <laughs> and fear yourself. You know what? Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I say that um, in what I think to be the most clever thing that they have done with this property though is it appears that they have made this movie because these books came out in the 80s and 90s yeah they have made this movie aimed at the demographic that grew up with it yep but also open enough to include new generations of Mm. children to see it as well they didn't water it down like that is one thing now goosebumps i know was always silly yes but They, I mean, Goosebumps the movie was more of a straightforward comedy. Like, it was. I mean, there was nothing scary about it at all. I have 10 and 12-year-old daughters, and both of them were like, this is... Like, the youngest one was like, I want to see it, but nothing in her when we saw it was like, that was scary. I'm scared of right. this. She was and, like, yeah. that was a fun adventure with monsters and stuff. But yeah. And, and, and I'll make fun of the Goosebumps movie a whole lot, but what I will give it credit for is that it's some, in some version of its soul, it is trying to accomplish what R.L. Stein did as he gives easy entryway for young children to understand the structure and themes that happen in horror stories. You know, Absolutely. normal setup, kids dealing with bigger things outside of themselves, overcoming something, and then a crazy twist at the end. Like, that, he was attempting to give a foothold into that world for people who were not old enough to be there yet. Sure. Now, I think the movie aired a little too much. Like, that was my biggest problem with the movie is who is this for? No, no kids the age group that that movie actually works for read the books. Sure. But everyone uh, our age who did read the books, that movie is way too juvenile for. So Ex- I didn't know which audience it was aiming for. But with this one, I know exactly where he's going. Right. They're, it, it's, yeah. They're, they're aiming for us. And, <laughs> and I'm going to see it. And I'm so into that. And the fact that it carries a PG-13 rating. Yep shows that they're aiming for us. You know and, what I mean? And even everyone who is like, well, shouldn't it be R? 
most horror movies are not everybody like we've got right. we've gotten uh kind of spoiled to it nowadays with things like it and uh and the movies that are coming out and the stephen king movies that are coming out but the ring pg-13 right um all like the great ones that we think about rosemary's baby i think is pg-13 isn't that uh, crazy so it is this weird like people have put this this certain like uh countenance on a yeah on a R rated movie that it's like, man, there are way more PG 13 good horror movies than you would realize. And, and everyone like, yes. So go back and look all the horror movies that you love. I mean, outside like the thing, um, are, or a lot of them are PG 13. Sure. Um, now I will say, um, the writers of this movie are interesting. Um, it appears that their previous movies, uh, were Hotel Transylvania. Awesome. And the Lego movie. <laughs> really? The Lego movie? Yeah. They wrote that and Hotel Transylvania. And now here's the deal, though. It does look like uh, Guillermo del Toro had a hand in writing a version of the screenplay. Okay. As well as uh, Marcus Dunstan. Does that name ring a bell to you? Yeah, um, he was a monkey, and he checked into a hotel. <laughs> nope, and Patrick Melton, those guys did the Feast series of horror movies. Do you remember Feast? I do remember Feast. Um, that's them, and they they were also involved with the Saw franchise, as oh, well wow. as the Collection. Do you remember the Collection movies? I do, vaguely. I don't. He honestly couldn't say anything specific about it, but I remember what it is. Okay, yeah. so they're, they're, those guys, Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan, are like, hardcore like gore horror guys awesome that makes me happy so they apparently came up they wrote the story and then guillermo del toro and the hagerman brothers wrote the screenplay now interestingly enough okay so i'm looking into the the hagerman brothers they look like they have wrote a lot of that troll hunters show that guillermo which i'm guessing is where guillermo pulled them from like, yeah, and that was based off like a book or something that he wrote. I think maybe so. with them. Yeah. Um. Now, okay. Let me put a pin in that. Have you watched any of that Troll Hunter show? Yes. It's pretty good. It is pretty good. It is pretty good. And uh, starring the late great Anton Yelchin and uh, the current and fine Kelsey Grammer. Yeah, <laughs> the current and fine Anton. Hey, speaking of which, I really want to see that Love and Tashka movie. The, oh yeah, the about, one that's a, like a documentary yes. about him. Oh man, yes. I I still get broken up when I hear when I think about him or when cuz uh cuz uh he's really like in that troll hunter show right now. Sure. And I hear Anton's voice in it and I just get sad. Oh. Because I mean it, it is. It's a good show. Now, I will say between watching Troll Hunters and then going back and rewatching some of the Hellboy movies that Guillermo del Toro did, he has an obsession with the troll market. Yeah, oh man, he does. That's like his thing. Now, hey, let's use this as a perfect segue. It's time that we let people know what this episode is all about. It's not yeah. just about scary stories, guys. Oh, no, no, no. We haven't seen it yet. How could we do a whole episode on that, guys? Why do you keep asking us to do movies, episodes about movies we haven't seen yet? Jesus. <laughs> Instead, we've decided to do a Guillermo del Toro top five episode. Heck yeah, yeah. Now... A lot of you are going to say, guys, haven't you talked about Guillermo del Toro before? Yeah. Of course we have. He's a great director. We love movies, and he makes great movies. So, yeah, we've talked about him on the show before, but guess what we haven't done? We haven't ranked all of his movies, and we haven't talked about his themes and consistencies and greatness as a director and storyteller. Yeah, so that that's is what we're so, do. that is so true. So it's time to give him his devil's due, if you will. His devil's do and, and his and uh, you know what I'm just gonna have to just strengthen my devil's backbone and we're gonna <laughs> need to dive into this labyrinth together. Perfect, because you're a real hellboy and we're heading towards the Pacific Rim. Yes, and I am drinking water. The shape, in the of- shape of of water. <laughs> Perfect, and it is currently in the shape of water. We are yes. currently lost in a labyrinth of movie titles. <laughs> Chronos, Pan's labyrinth. Don't you titles? mimic me. <laughs> All right. We've got to stop this. Hellboy well, 2. We're out of movie titles. <laughs> Wait. Uh, okay. Okay. The Golden we've Army. The, we've reached the crimson peak of what this joke can do. Oh, my God. Yep. We're out. <laughs> All right. All right. Everyone feels like they're they're coming down with a strain of annoyance of us. <laughs> the, the strain of annoyance. Yeah. This is a real nightmare alley that we're in.
it is. That's it a new is. movie that hasn't even like started <laughs> filming yet. Everyone's like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, you're lying to us, just like Pinocchio. Oh, God. Uh, I hate us so much. We just need to be put off to Silent Hill somewhere. I agree. I feel like this is a real carnival row of jokesters. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, guys, we're out of movie titles. Yay! Nope, we're just a bunch of wolves and villagers. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Troll Hunters. I'm sending you to the orphanage. Now we're doing the movies he produced. <laughs> I know. This is ridiculous. We've got to stop. <laughs> but, okay, but for all seriousness, Guillermo del Toro, amazing director and deserves to be talked about and lauded. Um, absolutely. And a crazy thing is to think kind of like where he started. So if you, like, scroll back in time, uh, back to – kind of where he got his footing for American audiences. Right. 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 Um, right. It's, it's kind of amazing the movies that he was involved in and to imagine where his career would project from that starting point. So if we think all the way back to 97, okay, which was his first American produced production um, and you've, you got mimic, right? Right. Now, what did you think of Mimic before we dive into like, like production of it yep mimic is probably one of my favorite horror like 90s monster movie horror movies really i love it really i have a real and i've watched it recently like i am that is not just like nostalgic memory overtaking the movie it is a fun weird creepy gory well (laughs) movie Here's the thing, and here's why I wanted to ask you about this, because I also remember very much liking Mimic for those reasons. It was different. It was very practical, effectsy, and gory. Um, it was based around cockroaches, which was always fun. Sure. But Guillermo del Toro has notoriously come out and says he doesn't like it because the studio wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do. Which, for me, is crazy because it feels very Guillermo del Toro. And that's that's actually what I wanted to key in on is I think in my heart of hearts that's why I like it so much. And I, I haven't gone back and rewatched it recently. I, I kind of want to do that now that we're talking about them. Sure. But I feel like if I looked at it from a movie standpoint like the the story structure and kind of how the characters work and the themes that, you know, come through, that it probably is very surface level and is very mediocre, but it's got the the dark human layers as well as practical creature effects that were very new, very forward thinking that all became great staples of what Del Toro would do. And I'm wondering if those were the aspects that I glommed onto because that was one of the first, like you said, his introduction to American audiences. Yeah, I agree. It was kind of one of those things where – he, it, I feel the world building, the character building in that yeah. movie. I feel these really intricate character designs. The set design and the overall tone of the film feels very Guillermo del Toro or what he's kind of come to be known as. We also talk about, uh, you know, we've talked about in the past, good directors. Directors that have made some of my favorite movies. The Rocketeer. I'll use Joe Johnson as an example. So Joe Johnson as a director has no discernible style. No sure. look to his films. He is kind of one of those directors for hire and it and it yeah. works because he can kind of adapt to whatever the story is needing. Right. Um, then you have directors, you know, and this one may have lost his way in the later years, but you have directors like Tim Burton, Guillermo del Toro, even Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino, we just talked about that him. That have very distinct styles, looks, dialogue, design, that as soon as you see that movie, you're like, oh, this is definitely a Quentin Tarantino, Guillermo del Toro, Tim Burton movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Christopher Nolan even is one of those directors. I feel like he has a very distinct style, tone that his movies, you know, when you see a trailer, you're like, oh, this feels like a Christopher Nolan film. Right. Well, and one of the things, and, and, you know, and I know people may say, well, you can't give the directors 100% credit for that because, you know, there's the editors and there's the cinematographers, but. With people like Guillermo del Toro, they have teams of people that they will use and reuse and use again to 
always give off that tone, always right. give off that opinion. Um, and so that is what I think is impressive is that Guillermo has found the team and the style and the process that he likes to give us the movie that feels like something he creates. And, and that is just very, very impressive to me. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think one of the most interesting things about e those teams of directors that we just you know, mentioned is the fact that they do have this team of people that they surround themselves with that mm -hmm. all make up the vibe of those kind of directors. You know what I mean? Yeah. They'll often work with the same cinematographers. They'll often work with the same costume designers and set decorators. Editors. They'll yeah. often work with the same editors. Because once you get that, like, pace down, it's the same reason you and you and I work together, is right. we complement each other, and together we make a unified style. The vibe of this show comes from input from both Jay and I to yeah. give off a distinct feel of High Five the Podcast. And because no one else will work with us. Exactly. Yeah, we're, we're relegated to only working with each other. Now, you had said a phrase that I want to jump on for just a second. You had said team of directors. Sure. And I just want to mention this in case people don't know it. Uh, I, I know you will, but like the three amigos, the amazing impressiveness of the fact that Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, and uh, Alejandro Iñárritu came up together in the Mexican film scene, helped each other out, are currently still friends, and are now, over the last couple of years, dominating the American film industry, yeah. is awesome. I love it when very talented people can respect, compliment, and bring each other up because they all tell very different types of stories, but they all have very specific tones and themes and ideas that make them feel like the, their own movies. Well, let's, let's, so, uh, regionally speaking to play off of that regionally speaking, different areas of the world, different regions of the world have very distinct storytelling styles. They feel they sure differently. Um, I would encourage anybody who's listening to the show that hasn't really delved into world cinema as a whole. If you only watch American films, branch out a little bit and you'll be surprised as to what you see. You're not going to, if you're sick of the stale, like, Oh, this feels like a normal movie. Go branch out, go check out different regional, regional films. And you'll see that they have a fresh kind of take on it. And I will say specifically in the recent years, Mexican cinema or Mexican heritage cinema has really come to the forefront of of film in general and has really right. been given an audience and we've gotten some amazing films out of it and so and amazing fresh voices um that I love and Guillermo del Toro honestly kind of made that jump prior to the previous two that you mentioned right. and I feel like he kind of used his ability his power his clout as he kind of broke through to the mainstream and kind of helped bring them up yeah with him he called them up from the from the bench so to speak yeah. you know what and, i mean and like, I'm all right guys so happy that he did that um and so guillermo del toro outside of his um films and starting with mimic one thing that he has been very passionate about is giving the opportunity to others to have a voice in cinema. That's one of the things that I admire the most about him in general is he has this very like, we're all on the same team kind right. of mentality. And he likes working with newcomers. He likes working with up and comers. He likes working with, uh, with regionally diverse people. Mm -hmm. He likes giving a voice to the voiceless, so to speak. Um, and I admire that. I feel like sometimes um, the uh, Hollywood film machine can kind of feel exclusionatory. Right. You know what I mean? And, no, I do. And it can kind of make people feel that even though, you know, filmmaking, let's be honest, we live in a time of the world where where film, the, the ability to make a film is in literally the palm of everyone's hand. Like yeah. anyone can make a movie nowadays. It's not like. 10, 15, 20 years ago where this technology didn't exist and you literally had to rent cameras and rent editing equipment and do all these things. You had to go the Kevin Smith route. Right. You can literally pick up your iPhone. Steven Soderbergh has made at least two movies that I'm aware of filmed <laughs> completely on an iPhone. Yeah. So the fact that that is readily available to everybody 
despite that fact, the Hollywood machine kind of pushes, it still doesn't feel as welcoming or accepting of independent cinema as it once was in the early 90s there was this kind of heyday of like right oh hey look at all these like random kids that want to make all these weird movies your tarantino's your kevin smith's um look at all these weird voices let's let, let's put right. them on display for a while um and so the fact that you have a hollywood heavy hitter like guillermo del toro who is actively working to give a voice to those people is inspiring. And I hope that you and I one day in our illustrious film career get to work with Guillermo del Toro. I, I, I would love it. And I want to add to that. I think one of the reasons that, uh, that, that he does that. And one of the reasons that makes it so impactful is Guillermo del Toro. Oh my goodness. Guillermo del Toro (laughs) knows the pieces that need to be in place to tell a good story. So, his casting, whether it may not be, you know, he's not going to hire like Jacob Tremblay because everybody knows him. He'll find a child actor who is perfect for the role, a la, you know, Pan's Labyrinth or Devil's Backbone. Or he'll take a property and insert the the perfect right element. And I'll use Hellboy as an example. No one is better at Hellboy than Ron Perlman. Yep. And we've proven that this year. Right. And that's and, not and I to love say David that, Harbour. I was about to say, not to say that we don't love David Harbour. I love him. I love him. I think he's great. I think he's wonderful. Uh, that, that Frankenstein thing on Netflix is a weird trip. Uh, he, David Harbour is, is a fun time at the movies. But, he, but Ron Perlman is Hellboy. And then even when he comes into like an established property like, uh, like a Blade Two, sure, he sort of reinvents it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he says, okay, well, I see what you guys did with that first one, but I really want to make more of a collaborative movie that focuses on like these practical elements and this storytelling technique. And he's able to do that. And I don't care what anybody says. I like Blade 2 way more than the first Blade. I I honestly I think Guillermo del Toro is really great at sequels for established properties cuz I like Hellboy 2 way better than Hellboy 1. Right. Well, that's a that's his own property though. I know, but it, Hellboy was an established comic yeah, property. Yeah, that's true. That's and true. so the studio was involved like okay, I believe 100% that it was the studio's fault that we had that milk toast protagonist in Hellboy 1. That oh, instead sure. of focusing a hundred percent on the, Hellboy, like, the weird agent who was like, "Yeah, hey, I'm like, the new oh, guy." Well, it's like the studio was like, "We need an entry point for the the audience. normal audience for this." Right. And Guillermo was probably like, "No, we don't." And they're like, "Yeah, well, you have to do this." So in the second one, that's why they transferred him to Alaska and didn't have him in the movie at all. It works better, right? And I agree, and it it immediately puts you more into that world and that's something that that's a that's a term that will keep coming up as we discuss uh Guillermo del Toro is a world he has a real affinity and knack for building realistic and even heightened fantastic breathable palpable worlds his stories take place in these fleshed out environments that feel like they've existed somewhere in a corner of the universe that we just have yet to visit. Oh, I'm so happy you said it that way. I was about to say is I think the thing for me that I love about the worlds that that Guillermo builds is that they're worlds contained within our normal structure. Right. You know, Pan's Labyrinth is Civil War Spain in a house, and then there's weird stuff. Right. You know, Hellboy, the whole point of that is that nobody knows that this, you know, BRPD exists. They're the men in black of monsters. Yeah. The shape of water exists in our world in the 60s. Right. It's not like, you know, John Carter of Mars or Star Wars or, you know, and not to take anything away from those except for John Carter because it sucks. But like <laughs> building another universe like a dune. That is in itself impressive, but building a new universe in our own world is something that I think Guillermo del Toro loves to tell stories about is the, just like you said, the disenfranchised, the underprivileged, orphans, blind ladies in the 60s, um, you know, uh, Hellboy, <laughs> the, tr- the troll market. He, 
I mentioned it earlier. The troll market is like the perfect analogy for Guillermo del Toro. It is a secret, dense world that exists within our world that if you know where to look, it's extremely fascinating, but no one's looked there yet. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that statement. Um, he And it, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing that a director can still kind of have this creative influence. Right. Um, and he, one of the things that I admire as well, this is welcome to the We Love Guillermo podcast. Right. Um, but one of the things I admire about him is he also isn't, he isn't afraid to walk away from a project if he feels too much interference. I, I think I know where you're going with this because it relays directly to my next question to you. Go ahead, go. So in the in the interest of possibly diverting from the We Love Guillermo del Toro podcast, sure. Where do you stand on Pacific Rim as a property? Not not the first movie by itself, but just as a property. Um I don't love it. I think and and here's the thing. I love Pacific Rim on paper. Sure. Giant mecha robots yep. fighting giant kaiju, the world comes together. I love that on paper. Sure. But the movie, the first movie, and especially the sequel that had nothing to do with Guillermo, I could feel that it wasn't Guillermo's movie. Oh, for sure. You and I, we have, and anybody who's interested here, our like in-depth thoughts on Pacific Rim, go back. We have a spoiled rotten episode where we, Jay and I, went to the theater, the theater, on purpose. On purpose and watched an advanced screening of Pacific Rim Uprising and then immediately gave you our thoughts in the car post-screening. Yeah, afterwards. And, yeah, you can see where we fall on that movie. It's not great. It's not great. That's the gist. Spoiler alert, everybody. Pacific Rim 2 kind of <laughs> Wouldn't that sucks. be weird if it was the other way around? It's like, spoiler alert, it's amazing. <laughs> it's the best. It's maybe one of the most underrated films of all time. Like, and I think part of the thing that, for for me at least, that that I I use as a knock against Pacific Rim is it doesn't feel like a Guillermo del Toro movie. Oh yeah, totally, one hundred percent. It doesn't at all. It feels like somebody's like bastardized version of a property. They're like, oh, we're gonna slap the Pacific Rim name on it. But exactly. Here's a different. Here's a movie starring Clint Eastwood's kid. <laughs> Yeah, and I almost think that because of his experience with Pacific Rim, that's why he almost doubled down on Crimson Peak. Yeah. When he's like, this is going to be more of a Guillermo del Toro movie than you probably want. Now, speaking of that, and once again, maybe deterring a little bit from the We Love Guillermo train, I didn't love Pacific, I mean, Crimson Peak. See, I, me neither. Now, was, I appreciated yes. it for different elements, like the, the cinematography was great. Absolutely. The design is beautiful. The design. I even think the acting is fine. Sure. It's, you know, it's good enough. I didn't love the story overall. Right. And not enough monsters. There was not enough monsters. There was a way more of like that weird incestuous romance in yeah. information than I needed and or wanted. Well, and see, that's kind of where I'm going with that is that I think Pacific Rim was not enough Guillermo, and I think that he overcompensated in Crimson Peak, and he's just like, I'm going to make it mysterious, and I'm going to make it like in a house like Devil's Backbone, and I'm going to oversaturate the colors and really get into mood. And so I think he he went too far the other way. Sure. And then he you know he came back with Shape of Water and he's like, no no, here's my sweet spot. Well, let's like, talk. This is, this is what I do. I think that's a good jumping off point to get into more of his what I would consider regional cinema or his independent works as well, because you brought up Devil's Backbone, mm -hmm. um, which is personally a very much beloved <laughs> Guillermo del Toro so, movie. It's so good. It's like. I mean, and this is going to sound weird, but it's the Pan's Labyrinth before Pan's Labyrinth. I would have 100% agree with that. A kid in the Spanish Civil War with subtitles that I can't look away from. Right. It's And it's it's mesmerizing. And like it's it is dark. It's dark, and it's haunting, and it just gives you this, like, uneasy feeling. Um, but it's once again, it's beautiful. It's beautifully mm -hmm. shot. It The locations and the set design and the costuming and everything is gorgeous. Um and a very underrated, or not underrated, but underappreciated movie, maybe. I would see underviewed. I don't yes. think a lot of people, have, like everyone, and spoiler alert, guys, we also love Pan's Labyrinth, and we're about to oh, talk about 100%. it in just a little bit. Yeah. But 
everybody knows and loves Pan's Labyrinth. Sure. Well, everyone who pays attention to this sector. Right. But not everyone knows and loves, like, the Devil's Backbone or the orphanage that he produced. Right. And I think that is a crime because you can totally see where he was going. And a lot of the stuff that you love, and I'm not talking about you, Q, but you, the listener, if you love Pan's Labyrinth, you deserve to yourself to watch Devil's Backbone because the genesis for all the good things in Pan's Labyrinth came from that movie. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, one of the other movies, one of his early movies, before we jump to the much-beloved Pan's Labyrinth, which I sure we have, I'm sure we have a lot to say on, um, but before we get there is Kronos. Now, Kronos is a weird movie for me. It sure is. It, it's a weird movie in general. Um, it was actually, I think, one of the first Guillermo del Toro movies I saw. Uh, it, well, it's one of his first features. So I know it came out around, you know, in the 90s when we were coming right. up in that And in I that, think in that I, if I remember correctly, I picked it up in my local video store because... It had now. Here's a little known fact about me. I don't even know that you know this, Jay. I'm a big uh, Ron Perlman fan. Back oh, yeah. from Beauty and the Beast days. Oh, the TV show. My parents used to watch the Beauty and the Beast TV series. No, I didn't know this. And I loved. That's part. I think that's part of where I had my love for uh, practical effects and puppetry and just weird like makeup performances. There's a lot uh, of that in there because. Uh, for those who have never seen uh, Ron Perlman in the Beauty and the Beast series, please do yourself a favor. Uh, it is such a strange show. <laughs> it is now. Now I will say, guys, if you're thinking, are you talking about that one with the guy with like the cracked face that came out a couple years ago? No, 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 no. This is not that show. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> that that was a modern day version that was very very we're talking we're talking ron perlman and linda hamilton yeah ron perlman full beast makeup full cat person makeup he walked off the set of cat he was like mr mistopheles and then walked on to the set of beauty and the beast and we're talking linda hamilton a la terminator one and two yeah and i guess now the new terminator movie Yeah, yeah dark fate um but so i was a big fan of his so i remember walking through the video store and I saw his name on the movie. It was on the VHS case. And I remember being like, well, I'm going to rent this. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I'm going to rent this. And my parents were those kind of like at the time, they were kind of the lackadaisical parents that were like, whatever you want to watch. We don't care. Like they didn't really monitor it very much. What's this movie about? A blood curse? Sure. Go. Yeah, right. They're like, that sounds fun. Vampires, I think. Um, let's watch <laughs> it. Um and so I remember watching it, and A, it was like a really bizarre, kind of fucked up movie. It is it is weird. Uh, we can talk about it a little bit. But it was also one of those films that uh, I immediately was like, I have never seen anything like this ever. Okay, so for everyone else that's kind of saying like, what, wait, wait, Kronos? I haven't heard about this. Let me tell you a quick rundown of what this is. Yeah, go ahead. There is a what looks like a little beetle. Um, but it's mechanical, that attaches itself to an elderly man and gives him eternal life. But in order to obtain his eternal life, he has to feed the beetle in his palm human blood. Yep. It's a little bit like the first Hellraiser, but weirder, uh, if that makes sense, and not as Clive Barkery. Um, right. But that's it. That's the whole movie, is this guy doesn't necessarily want eternal life, but he sort of gets addicted to eternal life at the expense of people around him. Yep. So that one, hence your theme. So, and let me just say, I'll just throw another movie out there. This is not a Guillermo del Toro, but in the vein of these like world cinema, uh, one of the other movies, because of my Ron Perlman love that I discovered was the city of lost children. Oh, I don't know if I've seen that. Oh my God, man. If you have not, it's a, uh, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, but the director is Jean-Pierre Junot. Or Junet. That sounds super right. He has, he is very well known director. He's the director of Amelie. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Um, of I, Deli- I know that movie of Delicatessen. Have you ever seen that uh, one? Yep, yep. Um, he also okay, so I definitely he also did Alien Resurrection. Okay, well, uh, you didn't have to say that, right? Sorry. Uh, but he did in '95. He did The City of Lost Children. It was his movie after Delicatessen. My point is saying that 
I think Ron Perlman has led me to all of my world cinema. <laughs> like to to get a love of world cinema was all thanks to Ron Perlman, which is so bizarre because he is such a bizarre actor. <laughs> like he really is. But his, did you also watch all of Sons of Anarchy? I did, definitely. Because of Ron Perlman? And I watched Season of the Witch with uh, Nicolas Cage because <laughs> of Ron Perlman. Oh, man. I'm uh, sorry. No, I know. Me too. <laughs> I was definitely sorry. <laughs> I even watched that shitty Hand of God show on Amazon. Oh, I didn't watch that. But I li- I almost did because of Ron Perlman. That's though. what I'm like, saying. I almost watched it. Um, now, he is probably less reliable of a person to follow nowadays. But at the time, he was like an actor that was taking chances with all these yeah. like very strange directors, these very yeah. unique voices. Um, but that is a good recommend for since we're talking about world cinema, we're talking about Guillermo del Toro. If you like that vibe, go check out City right. of Lost Children. Jay, definitely go check out. City I, of I, Lost I will. I will add that to I will add that to my list. Now, for me, the reason I watched Kronos was because of the cover. Like the little the circle emblem with the scabbard on it, and then just the metallic Chronos across the top. Sure, it looked like a very classic film, and so I was like, "Oh, well, this is probably a good movie that I've never seen." So I rented it, um, and like you said, very weird. Uh, I I don't know if I'd say it's one of his best, but it's definitely interesting. And it's definitely worth a watch because you can tell where some of the 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 Guillermo del Toro ness. Is gonna stick. Oh, you, for you can sure. See what's gonna stick? For sure, for sure. Um, so one of the things that I have been always intrigued about, and I kind of understand in regards to Guillermo del Toro, is Guillermo del Toro is probably one of the biggest workhorses I've ever seen yeah. in regards to filmmaking. This dude has just creativity oozing out of his pores. To the point where he almost takes on so much pro- so many projects that never even happen. <laughs> right. Like, like he's writing books and doing comics and doing directing video games and episodes of The Simpsons and making movies. And also, by the way, I don't know if anybody has looked up his journals for Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, God. but there's like a library worth of character sketches and plot ideas and character ideas and journals that became that movie. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things is this dude just doesn't quit. He like he is going full tilt 24/7. And even though he hasn't like, you know, there's some space between his films for the most part. I mean, you look at um you look at uh let me pull up his directorial thing. Um, he, it's usually about 2 to 3 years. Right, in between films. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's kind of one of the things it is he takes his time and i guess that was one of the that's kind of where i was trying to go with that is he puts a lot on his plate because he is very creative but he also takes his time in choosing which projects actually make it through right. the gauntlet of creativity you know what i well, mean because wasn't he he was uh, uh, uh attached at some point to the uh uh the cthulhu or the the mountains, mountains the of madness. Mountains of madness. Yeah. Is that still happening? No. Okay. That is, but he was attached to it for the longest time and like wanted to do it but never could make it work and yep. and then just pulled the plug. And it's funny, he kind of interests and I wouldn't I would not be surprised to see that story and that movie come up later in his filmography in Me some neither. other version because I will say one of the funny things that I I'm not 100% sure that a lot of people know and I I'm pretty sure you know is that originally Guillermo del Toro was trying to shepherd a remake of the creature from the Black Lagoon. Really oh, I hard. Do remember that. He was oh, I've really forgotten about he that. He was really, really, really trying to get a creature of the Black Lagoon creature from the Black Lagoon movie made. And it just wasn't biting. The studio wasn't interested in the version that he wanted to tell and it didn't happen. Well, fast forward to a few years later, and he basically makes the creature from the Black Lagoon with the shape of water and yeah. wins an Academy Award. Now, Be- oh, okay, no, finish your statement on that because I want to talk about Shape of Water with yeah. you for a minute. So, so that film, from my understanding, was he was like, fine, if you guys aren't going to let me do the creature of Black Lagoon, I'm going to do my version of it anyway, but just I'll, I'll change it enough that I can do it. I love I love that the idea was probably like he's like all right here's my thing creature from the black lagoon uh, it's gonna be basically the same story but they're gonna be fucking 
Right. And the studio is like, no. And he's like, okay, but the name of it is The Shape of Water. And they're like, oh, okay, let's let's do it that let's way. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. That's I'm going to change nothing except the title. Exactly. But, then, but they could still fuck. And right. they're like, oh, okay, I guess that makes more sense. And that's exactly kind of what happened. Um, so I, Which, but I by just, the way, everybody, Doug Jones is the amphibian man. Doug, Doug Jones, Jones is, is in all, all of these things. He is He's in, always a fish man he, for or, Guillermo del Toro. He is. He is. He's Abe Sapien in Hellboy. Yeah. Um, now, we did skip over, but Doug Jones is our perfect segue into Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so, yes, everybody knows that Shape of Water is great. I think we talked about that on one of our, our uh, Oscar episodes. If but you've ever been curious what it's like if a fish person fucks a human person, go watch that go movie. Go watch it. And, you know, it's a beautiful movie. Don't get me wrong. It is. And Michael Shannon, oh, mwah, just he's so good in it. He's just so perfect. He is so it. good. But Pan's Labyrinth, I think... Outside of Hellboy, which I watched in the theater and really liked, of, because of course it's fun and sure. silly, and Ron Perlman's in it and all that, it was Pan's Labyrinth for me that it broke down a lot of barriers. You know, the, watching movies with subtitles was one that I would demand that people watch Pan's Labyrinth with me, and they're like, "I don't like movies with subtitles." I was like, "I don't care. You won't care. Just watch this movie with me." And it was one that sort of for me encapsulated everything that was great about Guillermo del Toro, his his Spanish heritage, his fascination with monsters and hidden worlds, his depth of character for both villains and innocents. All of, he just shoved it all into a perfect pastiche of horror and joy and grossness and absurdity. And, and I say absurdity because you halfway through the movie, you've got like an 11 year old girl reaching her hands down the throat of a gigantic prosthetic oozing frog. Sure. Uh, it's absurd and it's beautiful and it's sad and it can be, and there's layers to it. And I could talk all day about this movie. And I, I think, just, I think that's uh, why, I mean, we may be showing our hand a little bit in regards to our top I five am. list, but I personally think, and this is going to be a big statement. I think Pan's Labyrinth, is del toro's masterpiece i think it his other now that's not saying his other movies aren't fantastic but i think for all of the reasons you just listed pan's labyrinth is the most del toro movie that has ever been made like i agree it is all of the qualities individually that make up the kind of the sum of his movies all together in a perfect packaging that presents this like you said beautiful haunting uh fairy tale-esque real world historical um spanish culture based right spanish culture his own culture base like so it 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 was all of the things that made del toro del toro Um, and and honestly should we pause at this point and just go into the list we can start there and then work our way down fuck it let's list list This is where we make a list. The list. Three, two. All right. Okay. So, guys, this is going to be a different type of list. Number one is Pan's Labyrinth. Number one is definitely Pan's Labyrinth. And here's why I would vote for Pan's Labyrinth is that anything that you can point to that you like in another Del Toro movie. So, I love the depth and the violence and the historical aspect of Devil's Backbone and the innocence of the children. Great, that's in Pan's Labyrinth. I love the creatures and the and the humor and and the just the weird otherworldliness of like Hellboy. Great. Well, that's that's in Pan's Labyrinth. It's like I love the horror and the ambiance and the colors of um of uh, Crimson Peak. Peak. Well, great. That's in that's in Pan's Labyrinth. I love that Guillermo del Toro directed uh, Pacific Rim. Cool. Well, he also directed uh, <laughs> Pan's Labyrinth. Van's Labyrinth. You know, all the things that kind of point to what makes him a great director are on display in Pan's Labyrinth. I could not agree more. I think it firmly and without question, until he makes another Pan's Labyrinth, I think it will unequivocally hold the number one position uh, on a top five list. Now, for the remainder of the slots, for uh, uh, two through four, or two through five. Two through five. Can I... Can I throw a couple suggestions out there? Uh, please do. I have a, I have a couple that you know I think would uh, deserve to be on there, but uh, yeah, we'd need to talk about it. I would love to see, 
and I I don't know how you're going to feel about this. I would love to see at somewhere on the list, even if it's number five, I would love to see Mimic on there. And my my reasoning for – let me say the reasoning. The reasoning is because I think it's the closest to a studio version of Guillermo del Toro that we will get that is still successful. Like, that still feels mm, like a point. Guillermo del Toro movie, but it is made in a big-budget, blockbustery type way. Okay, so here's here's my thought. I, I had a feeling you would say this, given what you said earlier in the episode sure. about Mimic. I, I don't think that it is one of his top five best, but let me, let me, freeze, okay. let me freeze there. Best movies, like movies. Sure. But I do think that it's worthy of being in the top five representational of Del Toro. Sure. So here's what I'll... I will be totally fine with if it's at number five because I would watch it above Crimson Peak. I would watch it above Pacific Rim. And I would probably watch it above... Blade 2. Blade 2. Yeah. Probably. I would. So for me, like the ones that have to be on there, like Shape of Water or Hellboy 2 or Devil's Backbone, those are the ones that I think have to be there. Sure. Mimic can live with those as representing what Del Toro does. Well, perfect. Then I'm I'm so happy with that. What about, and I know you mentioned Devil's Backbone because I think that absolutely needs to be on there as well. I would say Devil's Backbone maybe needs to be number two. Uh, it's two or three for me. The only thing that could dethrone it would be Shape of Water because of its award winningness because of the furtherance he was able to do with the special effects and the acting and because of him focusing on a blind woman in the 60s. I would prefer Shape of Water be number three only because I feel like one and two were Del Toro working without constraints. Yeah. Number three still there were there were parts of there were parts of Shape of Water. Okay. Overall I liked Shape of Water. Do I think it should have won the Oscar for that year? I oh, probably not. do not. No. Um, it is a good film with some great performances. Yes. But it's that. It's a good film yeah. with some great performances. But it's not, for me, top of the top for Guillermo del Toro. And I would probably watch Devil's Backbone if we're doing it the way that we kind of talked about number five. I would probably watch Devil's Backbone over Shape of Water you know what? I can totally get on board for that. I love Devil's Backbone. I think it's underserved. I think it's underappreciated. And hopefully and, if we put it high on the list, more people will watch bing, it. Bingo. So that alone makes it, in my opinion, number two. So that puts Shape of Water at number three, which then, in my mind, puts Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, at number four. Yes, I would agree with that, definitely. Okay. All right. Let, if this feels good, we can lock it yeah. in. Number five, Mimic. Number four, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Yes. Number three, The Shape of Water. Number two, The Devil's Backbone, and number one, of course, Pan's Labyrinth. I think that feels not only good, but great. Great. Awesome. Now, now, now he's not directing scary stories to tell in the dark. He's not. He? He's producing. Okay. Okay. Well, so he, it, that couldn't even you know dissuade us, but everybody go see tonight's scary stories to tell in the dark because it's going to be great. Um, but also- And tell him high five sent you. Yeah, <laughs> Nobody will but care, also, but tell them anyway. The- <laughs> Go watch these five. Yes, definitely. And please watch these. Above five. all, watch Devil's Backbone, please. Oh my goodness! Yes, well, and tell us, everyone here listening has seen Pan's Labyrinth, but watch Devil's Backbone and tell us your thoughts. We want to know. We're curious what you think of Devil's Backbone. Yeah. So go check it out. Tweet at us. Uh, Instagram message us. Facebook message us. Post on our wall. Let us know what you, you think. You know how to find us. Just search online. High five colon the podcast and and message us however you want. And we'll, we'll be there. Be there. We'll be there. We have reached the end of another High Five, the podcast episode. It's time to lock up the writer's room and rest comfortably, knowing we knocked out another great list of things you should be watching. If the guys didn't mention your favorites this week in their lists, you can harass them by emailing them at myfive at highfivethepodcast.com. That's M-Y-F-I-V-E at H-I-G-H-F-I-V-E T-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com Got that? Or connecting with them on Facebook at 
facebook.com forward slash high five the podcast on twitter at high the number five the podcast instagram at high five the podcast or on letterboxd by searching high five colon the podcast don't forget to subscribe on itunes stitcher google play or wherever else you listen to podcasts and drop the show a five-star rating to show us some love what's the worst that could happen the ghosts that were hidden in this recording possessing your house maybe see you next week and that's a wrap everybody cut casper that's a wrap god printed what happens in the next reel cut okay that's a print okay cut that's a wrap that's a wrap people now let's get the hell out of here